You are listening to the City on a Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church and to support this ministry, visit cityonahilldfw.com. Thank you. Good to be back with you. Open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 12 through 14 this morning. Verses 12 through 14 is where we are in this great letter that John has written to us. He says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. About a week ago on Thursday evening, I came home with my three wonderful little girls, and uh, we were excited to have a night uh, that kind of kicked off a few days of just some daddy-daughter time. Jess went on a trip, and so I was uh, making food for us, and we were going to have a a movie night, and it was just going to be a whole lot of fun. And then a storm blew in, and um, of all my daughters, you know, they all have such distinct personalities. They're so different from one another. Uh, They respond to things differently. Camelia, my eldest daughter, is not a fan of storms. She never has been. Uh, Victoria is much like her daddy. We would go literally out into the backyard and lay on the ground and watch the storms blow in in real time. We could be storm chasers. I, I, I'm not even lying. We love storms. We love the, I'll go out and sit on the porch sometimes and just like, what are you doing? And, you know, Tori's out there with me. Lydia, I am not sure, was even aware there was a storm. <laughs> Lydia was in her own world. She was doing whatever it was she was doing. But Cam was very aware. She was very aware of the storm as it rolled in. She began uh, uneasy. She moved to a stressed state and before long was in a full-blown panic over the whole thing. And, and so I had to sit down with her and assure her that, hey, things are, are I've got a plan. Um, I, you know, obviously if a major storm rolls in and takes our house away, there's not much plan can do about that, but, but I have a plan. I didn't tell her that. I have a plan. You know, we're, we're going to go to the middle. I know where in the home to go. We'll get a mattress. Uh, I, I have all the confidence in the world that, that this should be okay. And so I just had to assure her over and over as she was really worried about, about this potential storm that is going to devastate her entire world. And, and, and really, the reality is, as I got thinking about that, she didn't need encouragement at that time. Encouragement isn't what was really uh, going to move her or, or, or shake her out of her panic or her fear. What she needed was assurance that if things get worse, dad has a plan. There's, there's something in place. Dad is going to do everything he can do to keep me safe. And we come to 1 John chapter 2, verse 12 through 14 this morning. And in many ways, it's exactly what John is doing here for his congregation. He's giving assurances to them. 
He's addressing them and he's assuring them of things that they no doubt had worry over, that they were concerned about. And so he is quelling those worries with some assurances that they have in Christ their Lord. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to pass those assurances along to you as well. We are entering into that time of the year right now. We're about a month away from Easter, and this is a time where I believe the church becomes the most vulnerable to spiritual warfare, about a month out from Easter. And and here's what I mean by that. We came in a week ago on what felt like a normal Friday morning, and our roof was gone, and our brand new sound system was covered in water and and actually was really full of water. We pulled the speakers down uh, uh, Tuesday, Kelsey pulled them apart, and we're, we're hopeful we're hopeful that, um, you know, usually water's good in a Christian context, right? Um, but not, not when it comes to your speakers. So we'll see uh, how that works. But, but it, it hit us with a lot of extra work all of a sudden. Many of you experienced the same thing. The storm hit you. It, it, you're sorting out the details of it as well. And so there's just a lot of extra work and a lot of responsibility you weren't really prepared for or planning for. And what, here's what will happen. The enemy will use that to try to overwhelm you in your already busy life. Several of you are dealing with illnesses or health-related issues in your own life or in the lives of family members that you love, and the enemy will use that to discourage you, to make you feel like you're not doing enough, that you could be doing more. You know, what kind of person are you? And and, and you're going to be filled with all these lies from the enemy in those moments. Some of you are working through sin in your life, feelings of guilt and shame that come along with that sin, and the enemy is going to use those feelings to condemn you to make you doubt your salvation, to make you feel completely unlovable. Some of you know people in the world of recovery who have recently relapsed, and that relapse is going to be really hard for you, and it's going to make you even perhaps feel like relapsing as well. Church, I believe we're under attack right now, and that's not to sound like an alarmist. It's to sound like a pastor who has been dealing with many people and, the, and the, the issues that are springing up suddenly in their lives. I believe we are under attack. We are every time this year. We see it every single year around this time. The enemy begins to raise his head a little higher, and the arrows begin to fly a little faster. And so as I was praying and wrestling through this text, I've been thinking about this for a couple of weeks, obviously. Chris preached two weeks ago, did an amazing job in the passage right before this, and of course, Dr. Bradford last week, which was really helpful to me personally, by the way. I uh, am also uh, a PhD student, so that gave me some much-needed time to uh, do some research. And, but I've been thinking about this text a lot, and I just couldn't figure out, like, man, how do I want to approach this? And it's like, as I was praying this week and wrestling through it, I just sensed the Holy Spirit saying to me, City on a Hill needs some assurances, City on a Hill needs to be reminded of some assurances that they have in Christ. And that is precisely what we find in this text this morning. Now, before we jump in, a, uh, I want to give you a cursory breakdown of the passage because this is a tricky one, admittedly. Uh, it, at first glance, when you read it, it seems like what John is doing is he is breaking up his audience into three categories and that each of those categories gets their own kind of unique assurance. So the little children, he mentions, they get an assurance. The fathers, they get an assurance. The young men, they get an assurance. And it's like, Oprah, you get an assurance, and you get an assurance, right? <laughs> and, and that's not quite what is happening here. We have to interact with the biblical languages a little bit to understand how to break this down and apply it properly. So in verse 12, uh, John says, I am writing to you little children 
because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. That's the Greek term, little children. Technion is the word in Greek. It means a small child. But John does not intend to give assurances to the small children of his congregation, not specifically. He's not referring to literal small children. He is referring to the entire church. Now, how did I come up with that? The context of the letter tells us that. John uses this term over and over again to refer to the church. Now, keep in mind, John wrote this letter when he was nearing his 80s. So, like, everyone is a little child to John, right? He can do that. But, but just so you're not taking my word, let me give you a sort of a, just a snapshot of the different places where he does this. 1 John 2.1, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. 1 John 2.28, and now, little children, abide in him. 1 John 3, 7, little children, let no one deceive you. 1 John 3, 18, little children, let us not live in word or talk, but in deed in truth. 1 John 4, 4, little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. 1 John 5, 21, little children, keep yourselves from idols. You get the sense over and over again that John has a, uh, he, he prefers this terminology to refer to his audience. They are like children to him, and he is like a father to them. He is spiritual, uh, mature, and, and he has walked with Jesus, and, and he sees his flock as children to be loved and guided. But then notice in verse 13, for some of you it may be verse 14. There's a little bit of discrepancy on where the verse breaks happen, depending on what translation you're reading. But you'll notice he says, I write to you children because you know the Father. Now that term children is not the same Greek word, technion. It's another Greek term, pideon, and it's a word that means infant. So get this, technion is a small child, but a pideon is more like a baby, like an infant baby. So verse 12 is a different group that John has in mind than verse 13. It looks very similar in English, very different in the original language. Here's what I want to suggest to you. I want to suggest to you that the assurances that John gives in this passage apply to the entire church. Everyone gets these assurances, regardless of whether you just came to faith in Christ, or you've been walking with Jesus for 50 plus years, or you fall somewhere in between. Everything that John says in these three verses is meant for all Christians, regardless of age or stage of life. So then why are there age categories? Why does he refer to these different categories? What I'm going to suggest is that John is using these age categories as illustrations to illustrate the kind of assurances that you have as a Christian. So in the same way that an infant knows its father, you as Christians can be assured that you have a father that you know and that knows you. In the same way that a young man fights and overcomes, you as Christians can be assured that you have overcome the enemy. In the same way that older men have experienced, older women have experienced faithfulness of God over the duration of many years of their life, you too can have the assurance that Christ will be faithful to you. So, let's walk through these assurances. And my goal for you here this morning is for you to Come away with the great, great promises of Scripture that God loves you, that you are forgiven, that He is committed to you, and that you have nothing to worry about, that you might rest a little easier in the faithfulness, the victory, and the forgiveness of Christ. 
Let's begin, if I can get my notes to start working. This is a second week in a row. There we go. There we go. Let's begin with the assurance of forgiveness. Assurance of forgiveness. John says, read it again, verse 12, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. The forgiveness of sin is the chief promise in Christ that you have as a Christian. It is the primary reason that Jesus came in the flesh to die for sin, for the forgiveness of sin. And we see that purpose being established and carried out long before Jesus is even born. We, we see it in the Old Testament. We get to Luke chapter 1. If you are in our Life Bible Studies on Sunday morning, that's our Sunday schools. We've been in uh, the gospel according to Luke now for, what is it, about 12 and a half years, give or take, uh, is what it feels like. Um, it's been, I think, over a year now, officially. But if you remember all the way back to chapter 1, there are two primary birth narratives in that chapter. There's the birth narrative of Jesus. There's also the birth narrative of John. And if you remember, John's parents are highlighted in that particular narrative. Zechariah, his dad, and Elizabeth, his mother. Uh, Zechariah is visited by an angel. And if you remember, Zechariah is silenced. The angel sort of hits a mute button on him because he is, he's, he's filled with unbelief. And he doesn't believe what the angel is saying, and so he is rendered mute for about five to six months, the remaining time of Elizabeth's pregnancy. And at John's birth, Zechariah names his son John according to the words of the angel. He has to write it on a tablet because he can't speak. And at that moment, it says that John, or Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he began to prophesy. And, and here's what he prophesied. He says in verse 77 that Jesus is going to come to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. So Jesus isn't even born yet. Keep this in mind. And he is already talking about, prophetically, the ministry that Jesus is coming to accomplish, which is about forgiveness of sin. We see it all through the book of Acts as well. We see it all through the book of Acts. The apostles are constantly preaching the forgiveness of sin. Acts 2.38, the Church of Christ's favorite verse, if you know, you know. It says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Acts 5.31, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. Acts 10.43, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Acts 13, 38, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. It's very clear when you read the book of Acts that this message of forgiveness matters a great deal. Now, the question is why? Why does it matter? Well, there are a lot of reasons why it matters. I mean, apart from the fact that if we don't have forgiveness, we're still dead in our trespasses, we're separated from God, we have no hope for eternity. Paul lays that out in, in 1 Corinthians. But beyond that, let me give you very practical reasons, two of them, for why the forgiveness of sin, the assurance of forgiveness matters a great deal to you as an individual Christian. One of them is a more of an inward reason and one that is more of an outward reason. First, it forces me to acknowledge my sin. The assurance of forgiveness forces me to acknowledge my sin. If I'm going to rest in the forgiveness that Jesus Christ has to offer me, I have to first acknowledge the thing for which I am in need of forgiveness. Otherwise, it's, 
There, there's, no, there's no meaning. There's no value. To say it differently, and if you have one of the printed sermon notes, you will see a massively uh, condemning error, uh, probably my fault. It should say, without confession of sin, there is no forgiveness of sin. It incidentally says, with confession of sin, which would be horrible. Um, typo on my part. We have to acknowledge our sin in order to receive the full benefits, to, to feel the full weight of forgiveness. You could think of it this way. If I were to come to a random person, let's say like at a park or in the mall, and I were just to come up to them and be like, hey, I forgive you. They'd be like, forgive me for what? Right? Like it would be very confusing and, and really unhelpful, actually. My forgiveness will mean little to nothing unless they've wronged me. And they are aware of it. And then it means something. The same is true in our relationship with God. The gospel's message of forgiveness forces me to acknowledge my need for it in the first place. And listen, that's hard. I understand that. But it's so needed. Because when I come to the end of myself and I confess my sin, Jesus meets me in that confession and says, forgiven. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 15, it says, The Holy Spirit bears witness to us. He speaks to us, in other words. And this is what he says, verse 16. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. This is actually a quote from Jeremiah 31, 34, that the Holy Spirit is now speaking to the church wherein uh, Jeremiah prophesied of a new covenant that God would establish with his people where he would give them his spirit and he would wash them and make them clean and they would have his spirit to follow his statutes and commandments. That's the covenant, by the way, that we belong to as Christians. And, and the reason I love this from Hebrews so much is that it tells us we're not only forgiven, we, only, we not only have assurance of forgiveness in Christ, but God says, actually, I will no longer even remember your sins. And, and that, that is very powerful and very beautiful. It reminds me of the story of a woman who had visions of Christ and wherein she would have conversations with him. And she went to her pastor regularly to talk about it, about the, the visions and the conversations. And the, the pastor was very skeptical about it. He just, you know, admittedly, most pastors are pretty skeptical. And so he asks her one day, kind of in order to trick her a little bit, hey, the next time you have a vision of Christ, um, ask him what sin it was that your pastor committed while he was in seminary. And she says, okay, yeah, I'll do that. And a couple days pass, and they see each other again. And he says, did you have a vision? And she said, I did, Pastor. And he said, well, did you ask Jesus if he remembers the sin that I committed while I was in seminary? And she says, yes, Pastor, I did. And he said, well, what did he say? And she said, he told me he doesn't remember. God doesn't remember he says, I will no longer remember your transgressions. I will no longer remember the things that you've done. You say, I have to acknowledge my sin before God. And God's promise to me in that moment is to forgive that sin and actually forget about it. So forgiveness requires me to acknowledge my sin. Secondly, it, requ it requires me, you're going to love this, to forgive others. You hate it. Paul wrote in Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Colossians 3.13, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. So get this, you're going to really hate it, 
the extent to which you are forgiven determines the extent to which you should also forgive. Now, let me ask you a question, and this is not rhetorical. I want you to answer it. How forgiven are you in Christ? Completely. Fully. So fully forgive. Completely forgive. That's the idea here. If you call, this is the beautiful news that I want you to really think about. If you call Jesus your Lord and Savior, you can rest in the assurance of forgiveness. It requires you to acknowledge your sin. It requires you to forgive others as you've been forgiven. But look, you are forgiven. Let me say that again so that you really get it into your thick skull. You are forgiven. That is great news. Some of you are holding on for dear life to the sin that you have committed. You cannot forget the things that you've done. And dear brother or sister, you need to know that God has already forgotten it if you are in Christ. Fully forgiven, fully casted away. Some of you are holding out forgiveness from other people, and you were called to forgive in that same manner. In the same way that you have assurance from Christ of forgiveness, let others in your life have that assurance from you as well. What about the assurance of faithfulness? Let's talk about this one next. John says two things to the fathers in this letter. They're virtually identical. Verse 13a says, I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And verse 14b, I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. It's almost exactly the same thing. The literal only difference is that in verse 13, the verbal form is in the present tense, and in the verse 14, it's in the aorist tense, which really has more to do with style than it does meaning. In other words, what John is saying here is that in the same way that a mature Christian has experienced the faithfulness of God throughout his life, you too can have the assurance of faithfulness. God is faithful to his people. He cannot help it. It's just a part of the character and the nature of God. He cannot act contrary to his character. He is faithful. John has already used this word to describe God. Remember 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is what? faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3.3, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Hebrews 10.23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. In the Old Testament, I love this passage, Lamentations 3 verses 22 and 23, some of the most beautiful words in an otherwise pretty ugly book. He says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. That passage inspired what is to this day one of my favorite hymns of all time, Great is Thy Faithfulness. How many of you know that one? Y'all want to sing it? Let's sing it together. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, Thou forever will be. 
Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great. It's so much more than a song. It's a promise. It's a promise of Scripture. God is faithful. Be assured, God is faithful to you. Church, let me be plain with you. God has been so faithful to this body of believers at City on a Hill. He's increased us. He's blessed us. He's provided through the generosity of this body in so many ways that just never cease to surprise us. Even in the last two weeks, God's faithfulness has been so clear to me. We were moved out of the sanctuary after this sort of freak thing with the roof, and and he provided this great space and and resources that that we didn't have this time last year to come in here and be uninterrupted, essentially, in our time of worship and, and, and opening the Scripture together. We, we've, we, he's just been so faithful throughout the entire thing. And just personally, if, if I can be personally transparent with you for a moment about God's faithfulness to me, I, I, you know, I've sensed God's faithfulness so many times in the 16 years or so that I've been here at City on a Hill. But it's, it's, I think two years ago is what comes to mind when I think about God's faithfulness the most. Two years ago on Easter Sunday, uh, I'd just been named James' successor I've read the statistics, uh, actually a good number of statistics about transitions like the one that we endured here, and, and, and the statistics overwhelmingly say that when a senior leader as prolific as James has been steps down, you lose 25% of the congregation. And that's not like my opinion, that's not my like fears, that is well-documented empirical data that many, many, many churches have yielded through various transitions over the last 25, 30 years. So I was ready for that. I mean, just being honest with you, I was ready for that. I was ready to see people that I knew and loved to be like, hey, we love you, but not that much. We're going away, right? And, and that's fine. Like, I'm, I'm good with that because I know it's a reality. And we were also, you know, we were coming out of a pandemic. And, and so going into Easter Sunday, man, we just had no idea what to expect. The world was still, uh, I think, even more complicated than it is currently. Praise God, we've, we've come out of that some. We had no idea what to expect. We planned an outdoor service just to get outside so that people felt okay coming. And we just left the rest up to the Lord. And God brought the church together that morning in such a powerful way. It was one of the most powerful worship services I've been a part of. He brought so many of you back to us that, that we, had, we didn't know who was here. We had no, we'd been you know, pretty much only online. And, and in the in-person gatherings, the numbers were very sparse. And so we were just like, man, we, maybe we've lost three-fourths of the church. We, we just really didn't know. This past year, our transition completed. And we didn't lose people. We grew. And then we had that Easter last year where you know, we planned another one outdoors. And we were excited. And then the weather changed on us Friday, Saturday, actually, is when we made the call, when we were getting things set up. And, and so we moved it in here. And I mean, look around for a minute. This is 300 chairs. We had 800 chairs in here. 
I, Kelsey was like, you know how Jesus like multiplied the loaves and fish? I think he multiplied the room. Like we are still, we have no idea how that happened, how that many people fit in here. It was one of the most amazing mornings I've ever been a part of. I told so many of the staff, I, I just felt like Easter happened to us. And God has continued to be faithful to us. And this year, I'm like, I don't know what to expect for Easter. We're back in the worship center. We have three services. We have roof damage. Our sound system may or may not be messed up. And I'm not worried about it at all. Because I know that the spirit of Jesus will be with us. And I know that I have the assurance of God's faithfulness to his people. And I rest in that. And whatever happens, happens. Jesus is going to be glorified. He's going to be praised. The gospel is going to be presented. It's going to be an amazing time. Yeah. See, we can, we can have assurance of faithfulness because he is faithful. It's true with his relationship to his church. It's true in his relationship with individual believers. If you are a Christian covered by the blood of the Lord, rest in your assurance of the forgiveness that you have in Christ and rest in the assurance of his faithfulness to you. He will not fail you. He will not abandon you. He will be faithful to you. And last, you can rest in the assurance of victory. The last group of people John addresses here are the young men. He says in verse 13b, I am writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. Uh, the, the term evil here, poneros, it's a word that, that just means evil. It's just regular old evil. But it's translated because of its form here, substantively, which is a fancy way of saying like a noun. So it's not just evil as a concept, but the evil one, something that embodies evil. Now, who is the evil one? Yeah, it's not a trick question. El Diablo, right? The devil, Satan. So what John is saying then is in the same way that young men have this sort of courageous spirit that's apt to fight and overcome their opponent, this energy that, that starts to wane as they get older, you as Christians have overcome the devil in that same manner. Now, how does that happen? John tells us in verse 14c. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Again, there's a little bit of repetition here, but John tells us how we overcome the evil one. He says, because you are strong. And why are we strong? Because God's word abides or remains in us. So come back for a moment to what I talked about in the very beginning here this morning. About, we're about a month before Easter. The enemy has already been on the attack. He's already started to try to tear down many of you. So we need this assurance. We need it desperately. We need to be reminded that we have assurance of victory over him. John says, you have overcome the evil one by the power of the word of God in you. Whenever he attacks, John says, go to the word of God. That's what Jesus did. Remember, after 40 days in the wilderness, no food, no drink, Satan comes to tempt Jesus three times. And, and what does Jesus do every single time? He quotes scripture. He overcame Satan by his strength. Was it his physical strength? No. This was probably the weakest Jesus would be in the flesh. 40 days without water or food. This is a supernatural fast. But he was strong because the word of God abided in him. He is the word of God. He's the living and breathing word of God. Let me give you a snapshot of what happens when you allow the word of God to abide within you. I, I'm a big advocate of reading scripture, of memorizing scripture, and not just as like a fun mental exercise or so you can like impress your friends with how much Bible you know. There are actual benefits. There's practical benefits to having the word of God stored up in your heart. 
Let me just give you a few of them. This is not exhaustive whatsoever. Uh, first, it, it convicts you of sin. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. It cuts into you. It divides you. It convicts you of the sin that you so desperately don't want to confess to other people. Secondly, it guides you towards righteousness. In uh, Psalm 119, verse 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It, it, it lights your path when you're in the darkness. It guides you. Three, it equips you for the work of the ministry. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Connect with that. The Word of God equips you for not just some good works, for every good work. Fully sufficient is the Scripture to equip you for what God would call you to do. For it's the standard of truth. John 17, 17, Jesus prays and He says, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. Five, it protects you from sin. Psalm 119, verse 11, I have stored up your Word in my heart that what? I might not sin against you. You want to know why you will have victory over the evil one with the word of God abiding within you? Because the enemy won't want to go after you. He looks for weak Christians. He looks for baby Christians that don't know a whole lot, that are easy to manipulate, or that are wrapped up in some kind of secret sin that is preventing them for, for, from, from growing in the faith. But a Christian who is convicted by their sin, a Christian who walks on the path of righteousness, a, a Christian who is equipped for every good work, a Christian who knows the truth and is sanctified by it, a Christian who avoids sin, the enemy can't contend with that because the Word of God is abiding within them. He's the father of lies, but the Scripture is truth, and so it exposes him. He is darkness, but the Scripture is light, and so it casts him away. If you want to rest and the assurance of victory, store up God's word in your heart and let it guide you, let it inform you, let it form you into the image of Christ. And you will see victory in your life over him. Because he can't contend with it. He can't possibly stand against it. Listen to me, if you are a Christian, you need to be reminded of the assurances that you have been given by God in Christ. You have the assurance of forgiveness. You are forgiven. I like, by the way, this is just a personal thing, when someone confesses sin to me, I like to say, you are forgiven. It sounds a little Catholic almost, like I'm issuing forgiveness. I'm not, I don't have the authority to forgive you. I mean, I can forgive you for things that you've done against me, but I don't have the authority to forgive you like in the big forgiveness. But what I do have the authority to do, as all Christians have the authority to do, is stand on and remind one another of the promises of God. Amen. God says this. So when you confess and I say you are forgiven, I'm not giving you my forgiveness. I'm reminding you of God's forgiveness that he's already said. You have that assurance. You have that assurance. You have the assurance of faithfulness. People will abandon you in your life. I wish I could say that that was not true. I hope that it doesn't happen much. But there will be people in your life that you don't expect that will abandon you. Sometimes it'll be ugly. Sometimes you'll just drift apart. 
but God never will. Christ, our Lord, will never just sort of drift away from you. He's, he's always there. He's ever-present, and he's always faithful. And you have the assurance of victory through the power of God's word. You have the abiding, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword word of God at your disposal. And as you store it up in your heart, it is more than sufficient to equip you for exactly the work God calls you to and to overcome the enemy which seeks to destroy you. So here is my, my plea to you as your pastor, City on a Hill. These are the assurances of God for you, so walk in them. Walk in them. Relish in them. Bask in the glory of them. And if you are in the middle of the fight of your life right now, rest in them. Rest in them. Stop worrying, stop resisting, and even if just for a moment, allow yourself to stretch yourself out as if on a really comfortable bed and rest in the promises of God. God loves you if he calls you his own. Amen? Pray with me. Father, we thank you for these wonderful promises that you have for us. How easily we are rattled, how easily we are shaken, and how desperately we need to be reminded of your goodness to us. There is a reason why the New Testament uses words to describe the gospel like scandalous, because it just doesn't make any sense. The kind of forgiveness that, that we're given by human standards just doesn't make sense but it's only a testimony of your goodness and your faithfulness to your people. Would you help us rest in those things? Would you help us connect with these beautiful assurances that you've given us, that it may calm the storm around us, it may calm our hearts, and allow us to be more effective to the call you have called us to. I pray for those this morning who don't know your son Jesus, who need these assurances. I pray, God, that you would put it on their heart to confess their sin before you maybe for the first time and bow in submission to your Son, Jesus, Lord and Savior, and that we would receive them and walk with them from this day forward. God, we love you. How we pray to see your faithfulness continue. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. God bless you. Now, let me ask you, Two things. One, picnic, four o'clock today, be there or be square. Let's bring it back. It was from the 90s. It was a really great saying. Secondly, if you would be so generous to us, and if you're sitting in a black chair, would you pick it up and take it, fold it, put it over at the cart that's going to be coming out at some point right now? Look at them. They're over there doing it. That would help us a lot. We'll see you tonight, hopefully. If not, next week, God bless you. <laughs>